welcome to episode 309 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of the Reformed Podcast. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. You know what can't stop, won't stop? This podcast. This podcast. <laughs> and also our ongoing conversation about the Ordo Salutis. Yes. We're back. I love, I love that Latin term. It's just, it just makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Yeah. Most of the Latin, as we've been prone to say on this podcast, is a real crowd pleaser. This is the kind of thing yeah. when you're invited to a party, people expect you to walk in and say things like, Who's got some Ordo Salutis? Yeah. My favorite Latin term I, I learned the other day, actually, it's quite useful, is opera divisa. Oh, nice. Which is the divided operations. Yes. Which is referring to like the internal operations of the Trinity and how they're divided as opposed to the external <laughs> operations of the Trinity, which are not divided. Yes. Look yes. at that. Here's the thing. This is what people should appreciate about our amazing conversations. That was free of charge. Yeah. We're like a minute in and we've already unpacked several significant Latin terms. Yes. That, that isn't even what we're talking about today because we're going to get into sanctification, but not just sanctification writ large, but sanctification in the Christian life. We have now this extensive, I guess, back catalog of definitely definitive episodes. And we've already <laughs> spoken about sanctification, but we're turning it around slightly. And we're going to look at sanctification with respect to the Christian life. So that is what is yet to come. And what's yet to come is going to be glorious theology. So yeah. before we get to that though, we got to deny some things. We should affirm a couple things. And I'm going to request that you start with what you're denying against oh, on this episode. Man. This might derail the whole episode. <laughs> so I, I'm denying this is another, this is a category unto itself at this point. I'm denying Doug Wilson yet again. So I'm sure most of our listeners, it's crossed their Twitter feed or their Facebook feed or wherever they happen to get their head-shakingly ridiculous Christian minor celebrity news from. So Doug Wilson did this interview on Meet the Press, and I always get a little, I don't know about you, maybe you're the same way, but I always get a little bit gun-shy when I see any high-profile Christian figure on like a public, like a major news network show. You know, like John MacArthur would do CNN episodes right. once in a while, or you'd go on Larry King or something like that. And not not so much because, although sometimes it's because I don't trust that person to, re to represent the Christian faith well. Um, and that's not the case with John MacArthur, or even if it is the case with um, Doug Wilson. But more so because I don't feel like that ever is really productive. Like, even in cases where a person sort of goes on there because they feel like they might have an opportunity to really, like, preach the gospel— First of all, that rarely happens. You rarely see someone give just a straight gospel presentation on a show like this because you're being asked questions, you're responding to questions. Um, but also a lot of these are cut in ways that sort of like you might you might put everything you want into it and then they just pick what they want. Um, it doesn't appear, I haven't watched the whole thing yet. It doesn't appear as though they did any sort of like deceptive editing with Doug's interview. Um, Doug was bad enough on his own. They didn't need to do anything to make him look bad. Um, but so in this particular episode, he makes a statement that his goal is and ha always has been. And this isn't surprising. Anyone who's followed Doug Wilson knows this is to establish Moscow, Idaho as a genuinely Christian town. And the, the problem I have with that is. In the first place. 
okay, I kind of understand what he's sort of getting at. And although I disagree with what he, what his goals are, uh, and we'll talk about why that is and, and, and what exactly I, I have objections to, I understand what he's getting at. And in principle, it's not, not the worst possible idea in the world, but to the outside world, it just sounds like you're trying to do all of the things that everyone is concerned about Christian nationalism for, right? It's like the worst possible fusion of Christianity and politics is what the outside world looks at when they see this. And it's not as though this meet the press interview that he's being given a sufficient amount of time to fully develop that and explain it and articulate it and nuance it. So it just comes across as like, there's this guy in Idaho that wants to like fuse church and state in, in the worst possible way. And then of course they latch on to like, Oh, he's got, he believes in traditional marriage and, and all of the things that the culture writ large thinks is the worst possible thing. It just feels like a foolish thing to do. And then of course, I would have my own objections to the very concept of like a Christian government, a Christian town. Um, I think that two kingdoms theology can certainly go too far. And there are representatives that take it way too far, but the idea of like somehow the, the, the sword of the state and the, you know, the, the church, the keys of the kingdom, those two sort of like implements being united into a sort of single entity. Um, the, the Bible seems to make it very clear that the, the, kingdom of Christ is not of this world. Um, and it seems like to try to make a Christian kingdom. Um, it just feels and seems like biblically, that's not the direction we should be going. So I'm just denying this interview. I think it was foolish to take this interview. I think that the way he articulates himself lends itself and he does this on purpose. It lends itself to controversy. And now he's sort of painted all Christians in this light because he's, he's representing us, um, on this interview. Um, luckily I haven't had to like answer questions about it from my like non-Christian peers and friends, but, um, yeah, just denying Doug Wilson and especially Doug Wilson on this interview. Hashtag not my Doug Wilson. Yeah. Not my Doug Wilson. Not my Doug Wilson. I hear you. This is a difficult needle. I think to thread when you have some kind of prominent representative quote unquote Christian figure, come on to like the mainstream public media and try to address some kind of issue of the day. How many times does this end up being, let me say it this way, good or productive yeah. or helpful? Yeah. Honestly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I don't know. I mean, I guess I could conceptualize a certain kind of situation after a, a tragedy in an area. You know, like there's a role for the the pastors of a community to step forward and offer spiritual comfort and spiritual for sure encouragement. Um, and to proclaim the gospel in a public forum. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm not saying we should lock ourselves behind the door of the church. And I think this would be an interesting thing, and I'm sure we'll get to it as we get further along in this series, to talk about my views on like church Christians and government and Christians and involvement in the public sphere. I think most people would be surprised at my view um, when we get there. But it just seems like this kind of thing is usually like a shameless attempt to grab some spotlight. Um, and even if you, like I said, even if you couch it in this sort of idea that you're going to, you're going to preach the gospel where you're there, I don't actually think that usually happens. I don't, I don't remember a time where a Christian celebrity or Christian figure on one of these large medias, media shows has actually spent time pre- like preaching the gospel. Like these are the things of first importance and going to like Corinthian first Corinthians 15, 
Um, and also just generally, like there's not a lot of reference to the scriptures in these kinds of interviews. It's a lot of um, speaking about theology without reference to the scripture, whether that's intentional or not, or whether it's just a function of the format of the show, it still gives this impression that this Christian figure is not making use of the scripture in their, their interview. And full disclosure, I've not watched the whole interview. So some of what I'm saying may not be directly applicable to this particular interview with Doug Wilson. So all of you CREC people out there, don't at me. I, I haven't watched the whole thing yet. So I acknowledge I may not have the full picture, but it just seems like this practice, whether it is Doug Wilson or John MacArthur, or I've seen other big figures, those are the ones that come to mind. Um, it just seems like a, a sort of a foolish enterprise. It seems like an un, unprofitable, unproductive use of time. Right. I'm totally with you in that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do something we've never done before. Get ready for the the most epic audible. And that is, I'm oh, actually going to go into an affirmation. We're going to switch oh. it up. We're going to stagger this or alternate it as it were. You're because, going to confuse me, Jesse. Well, here's the thing. This affirmation fits in so well with what you said. And this comes with a warning. The warning is this is an entirely shameless affirmation. And that is, some of our listeners may know there's another podcast on the Society Reform Podcast Network called the Fast God Stuff Podcast. And as promised, long ago, the Fast God Stuff Podcast has finally released this four-song EP. The EP is called nice. Silly Songs to Save Your Soul. It's by Fast God Stuff. And you can find it wherever you stream your music. For instance, on Spotify or Amazon, it's coming soon to Apple Music. But here's why I'm linking it to your denial. And that is on this epic album, there's such hits as Politics Totally Solves Everything. And the reason why I bring <laughs> this up is because this song in particular, but the album overall is rated T and the T stands for Triggering Theonomists. So nice. this song is exactly everything you just said encapsulated in music. So I'm affirming with this fun little album that we put together. It's been a super fun labor of love. And if you like some silly songs that have, these are basically veggie tales for adults. They are fun. Yeah. They're silly. And yet the topic and the subject matter is intensely serious. They're very catchy. They're for the whole family. And it's a great album for you to check out. But this is a self-serving affirmation. Again, it's Fast God Stuff's album, Silly Songs to Save Your Soul. Yeah. And just to take on to that, Fast God Stuff is a great podcast. And, and sometimes people ask me, like, why, why do the episodes come out so infrequently? It's because there's a, an extremely high level of production quality on these shows. And Jesse right. and, and Conrad are often writing brand new music and, and producing new songs for each episode. And that takes a lot of time. But the upside of that is that Fast God Stuff is a podcast. Each episode is usually about 30 minutes. Um, the backlog is not super, super deep. So if you've never listened to Fast God Stuff, you could go grab the entire back catalog and listen to it uh, in a relatively short order. And you should do that because the episodes are fun. They communicate theology in a winsome way. There's a, a lot less of a polemic edge than you might see in a show like mine, and it gets or like ours, and it gets a lot less, um, a lot less technical, but it's still good, deep theology. And I've heard from a lot of people that it's it's a fun show that you can listen to with your kids, not because like other shows are inappropriate for kids. <laughs> it's not like there's a, a content warning on our other shows on the network, but it's it's fun and engaging in a way that is more appropriate for 
kind of that fun part of your brain. And then also then for your kids. So I'm totally on board with that. I haven't listened to these songs yet, um, but I love the different songs that have come out with all the different episodes. So I'm looking forward to, to popping that on, on the radio on the way to work tomorrow. Yeah. It's just good, wholesome, old fashioned, handsome rock. So yes. if you're into any of that and they're all, like you said, uh, fun, all of these songs, the four songs came out of episodes. So if there are listeners who have heard our podcast, what you're going to hear is something that you may have heard like in brief, but now our full length song. So it's everything from, again, politics totally solves everything, which hopefully people are picking up on the sarcasm in that title to <laughs> idols are naughty to, if you've wanted to hear a song just about hermeneutics, well, then your the dreams have finally come true. So I, I would, love the hermeneutics song. Yeah. I would encourage everybody to check it out. Super fun music. So uh, that's the affirmation. So now we're going to go back to you for, your affirmation. I, yes. What's the positive yeah. stuff? So I'm, I'm most people probably realize I get on like chains of, of affirmations. They, they cycle off each other. So last week I was affirming the Lord of the Rings television show that's out this week. I'm affirming a YouTube channel that's called nerd of the rings. And uh, <laughs> it's just basically like a deep dive lore channel. They go through like really deep dive, well-produced videos that explain like the ins and outs of Lord of the Rings lore. And I've read a fair amount of, of the Lord of the Rings. I've never read the Silmarillion all the way through it. That's a tough book to read. And um, this really does a great job of sometimes taking large periods of time and condensing the timeline and hitting the high points so you can get a good understanding. So for example, if you were trying to get your head around the Lord of the Rings television show, which happens in the second age of Middle Earth and, and of, of this world, that they're in. Well, they don't have the rights to the Silmarillion, which is where most of the first right. age stuff happens. So they can't actually tell you in the show what happened in the first age that led to what's going on in the second age. So for example, and hopefully this isn't spoilers for anybody, uh, one of the episodes takes place on this island called Numenor. And you can tell just by watching the show, there's all this history about how Numenor came to be and all these battles that are referenced, but they can't actually tell you too much about them. You could go to the Nerd of the Rings and you'd be able to look up an episode on the history of Numenor. So you could get caught up on that part of the lore from the first age without necessarily having to go back and try to read through the Silmarillion and, and pick it up. So it's a really engaging, fun, um, fun channel. The uh, the videos are well produced. Um, there's there's some that are like theory videos. So there's one that's like what what would happen if Sauron actually got a hold of the One Ring of Power, or what would happen if Gandalf had taken the ring from Frodo and had used it. Right. Um, which are obviously speculative, but they're interesting sort of things to tease out. So check it out. It's called Nerd of the Rings. Um, usually the episodes are ten to twenty minutes long, depending on how deep they're going. And if you wanted to, you could combine that with a previous affirmation <laughs> I was and turn this, this into a podcast feed if you want. <laughs> I was gonna set you up for that. I was gonna be like, what What would happen if you didn't have the time <laughs> to actually sit down and watch it, but you wanted to get it into your ears? How would you do that? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I I would suggest not doing the Huff Duffer route for this, just because. The videos are so visual. One of the things that happens with Middle Earth and with the Lord of the Rings and and the, I don't know what you call the broader saga when it's not just the Lord of the Rings, but the, this world that Tolkien has created, um, locations and maps and visuals are really, really important. Understanding which kingdom was north of which kingdom and west of which kingdom. And, um, you know, there's imagery about like a kingdom that's further to the east tends to be further away from righteousness. Um, or more, or sometimes further east is closer to mortality because the men 
woke up in the east and they moved right. to the west and the elves woke up in the west and they moved to the east so some of these themes um which are very biblical themes sometimes too yes uh, some of these themes make more sense when you're seeing the map and you're being you're seeing the visuals so i would suggest actually you know if you have a topic you want to uh, dig into and you want to use this channel to dig into it actually take the time to go sit down and like watch the video you can most videos on youtube you can speed up at, uh now so if you want to listen to it at a faster speed you can um but yeah it's a great channel like i said it's it's well produced they're they're engaging videos it's interesting stuff um he seems to be a very well-versed person in in this stuff and and you know, there's like interviews sometimes with people who are in the movies or people who produce the movies. So yeah, check it out. It's called Nerd of the Rings. So here's like a completely trivial lesser known fact about me. When I was in Oxford, England, this one time, I actually went and sought out this place, this pub called the Eagle and Child, where yeah. it was known that Tolkien and Lewis would just hang out and like smoke pipes and drink beer and allegedly speak about the works that they were writing. And I have to tell you, it, it's kind of just this random hole in the wall place. But it's got this super like amazing, like English style, like deep and dark wood. When you're sitting there, you just feel like you could write that next novel. Like you, you feel like you could analyze everything that was happening in the Lord of the Rings or anything that Lewis wrote. And then you leave and you realize you can't do any of it. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. That's how I feel when I think about like the white horse in like that, not the, not the podcast, but the actual white horse in <laughs> the podcast. I'm like, yeah, I could probably, do that. the, 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 uh, We're doing it the right actual now. white horse in, I'm like, yeah, I don't think that I could start a reformation. Like I, I I'm not that guy. Yeah. But so. here's the thing. This is a good time to bring this up. One of the things people will find if they go to reformbrotherhood.com is our lovely slogan. The reformation just got a whole lot better. And yeah. one of the ways it's gotten better is I just want to take a moment just to shout out and express some gratitude for those who give financially to this podcast. The reason why it's free for all available all over the world and definitive in many ways is because we have these amazing and lovely listeners who after fulfilling all the obligations that they're required to in the giving of their local congregations have decided by God's grace that they have some resources left over to send our way. That's what keeps all the hosting free, the downloads being brought in into whatever your podcast app is. So thank you so much. And if you're the kind of person that would, is saying, you know what? I also am in that position and I'd like to give a little bit back. And every little bit of counts, every little amount that is given to the Reform yeah. Brotherhood goes to making sure this all happens. You can do that by going to the website or patreon.com backslash brotherhood. We are really ever so grateful every week when we sit down to speak. I think about those who support us and I'm just so thankful for their contribution. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we try to be really um, intentional with how we use those funds. We try to, to find deals on things when we can, but we also try to make sure we're being generous with those funds right. um, to help produce other content. So we will sometimes help another show um, that doesn't, you know, they're trying to get off the ground. We'll help pay their hosting fees for a little while or where they'll, we'll pay for their domain name for the first year. So when you, when you support our show, you're actually supporting reformed podcasting kind of writ large. So there's a number of, there's a number of other shows that, that have benefited from the generosity of our listeners um, that you might be surprised by. I'm not going to put them out there now just because. We have to save some mystery for future episodes, but um, we really do try to 
allow the generosity of our listeners kind of overflow past just funding and, and managing our show into other areas. Um, so we really appreciate all of the generosity that people share with us. And one of the things maybe we should say, and this is a little bit inside baseball or pulling back the curtain, I'm going to mix all of the metaphors, is that on a regular basis, there are people that reach out to us and just express with a word of gratitude how a conversation or a particular topic has yeah. been really instrumental and either encouraging them or helping them to understand something. And this isn't because like Tony and I are somehow like great orators or have this yeah. kind of exegetical corner on the scriptures, but mainly that the spirit, the Holy Spirit is using the conversations in this way to encourage the church, to encourage yeah. other believers. So I want people to know that when they're praying for the podcast, when they're giving toward the podcast, there's all kind of fruit that's happening like outside and in spite of ourselves to say it that way. And we're just so thankful yeah. to be a part of this kind of thing. I know that that's like what you'd expect Tony and I to say, that that's the kind of thing that you expect from like Christian hosts of a podcast to say. But the bottom line is maybe it's cliche, but it's definitely the truth. And so everything that you give towards is really bearing all kinds of fruit in ways that are like beyond our expectation. And so yeah. I'm, it's just really awesome. It's amazing to see God work when people come together to worship him through conversation and through praise and through expository understanding of the scriptures and through discussing of theology. Yeah. All these things matter. And so we we have our conversations and I think we, both of us go away always encouraged and challenged and convicted. And it's just lovely to hear that so many others are joining in in the same ways. And that happens because others are willing to give and just cover these I would say incidental, but these are explicit and implicit costs. Just make sure that this thing goes out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I got, I lost track of where we are, but I think if I'm remembering, we're on your denial now. So what are you denying? That is factually correct. So I'm going to keep this brief, but it is a little bit enigmatic. And that is, I guess I'm denying against a certain type of Christianity that is what I would call Reader's Digest style, but in a particular way. I was speaking with a brother recently who felt that as he grew up kind of in Christian culture, and in particular in the church that he attended, that he wasn't allowed as a Christian to really process or grieve hurt. And so there is, I yeah. think, a particular brand of Christianity which says that to forgive somebody means that the hurt no longer is part of who you are. And we were talking about how like the beauty of Jesus Christ as both the great mediator, as the one who is truly God and truly man, is that he understands suffering and hurt in a profound way. And he actually draws yeah. close to those who experience that very thing. There's like a special relationship that the great doctor has for those who are in pain. And that sometimes pain, even as you forgive either the source of that pain or the person who is inflicted upon you, it becomes a part of you where it never goes away and it's possible to forgive and yet to still experience that. And how Jesus is the one that comes and identifies with us. And in fact, there can be a close relationship with Jesus in a special kind of way because you have experienced a certain kind of pain. So I'm denying against this kind of Christianity, I would say, you must forgive and forget in the sense that we always want to forgive. And yet sometimes the pain that happened as a result of whatever it is that took place is something that remains with you. And Jesus comes to bring you peace. Yes. He also comes to identify with that pain and to be an accompaniment or to be a person who journeys alongside you in that pain. Even as you say, like I harbor no animosity toward that person. I will no longer, in other words, count that offense toward that person. And yet there's something within me where there's still a pain in that. And for somebody to say like, well, you no longer should feel that pain is a Christianity that I cannot find in the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I find, um, 
in general, American Christianity has this very shallow view of what satisfaction is. Yeah. If, if you want to put it that way, it's, it's this idea that a healthy emotional life for a Christian is dominated by happiness rather than contentment. Mm. And I think because of that, people, they think, well, it's okay for me to be sad about something really sad for a little while. And as long as I, I'm not sad for too long, right. Then, you know, then it's okay. And, you know, I I've shared on the show that I lost my mom in, in February. And I think for the most part, you know, a Christian can grieve and should grieve and that grief and that grieving looks differently. Um, and I think is marked by a sense of contentment and confidence that isn't, you know, Paul even says we, we grieve as those who have hope, not as those without. But that said, like, there are still times where I, I'm just profoundly sad about the death of my mother. Right. And I, I think I, there will be times for the rest of my life that I'm profoundly sad about the death of my mother. And I think that's fine. I think that's good. Like read yes. the Psalms. Like most, yes. most of the Psalms are profoundly sad topics. Laments. Like, right. They're laments. The vast majority of them have these, these elements of lament and sorrow and grief that I think most Christians in modern evangelicalism just don't know what to do with because we've been sort of taught that the healthy, mature Christian is dominated by happy feelings of some sort. And, and those happy feelings can sometimes be overpowered and that's okay for a time. But, but if they're not, if you don't overcome the sad feelings relatively quickly, then like that's, that's a sign of immaturity. Right. And I actually think that as Christians, we have to learn how to, how to be sad in a Christian fashion. We have to learn how to be angry in a Christian fashion. We have to learn how to be happy in a Christian fashion. And that's a major piece that's missing in, um, in, particularly American evangelicalism, but I know it's, it's common in, in other Western forms of Christianity. But I think you talk to a Chinese believer who's in the persecuted church or, you know, someone in a, in an area that's facing genuine persecution. I think that's going to be a very different experience than what, what we have here in our kind of our cushy West where we can, you know, we can dedicate two hours every week to making a podcast and we can, we can listen to podcasts in our office where we, you know, make ridiculous amounts of money compared to the rest of the world. Um, I just think that we're in a very different kind of spot. I totally agree. I think your example is really good. I would say that, so let me, this maybe is putting you on the spot a little bit, but here we go. So would you say that it's fair that in some ways, like the sadness that you experience is going to become part of you? I mean, that, that's oh, a yeah, part of sure. you that will be irrevocable. And then in some yeah. ways that's, that's a longing for that eschatological restoration, but there, yeah. there is a glory in that while there is still yet remaining a deep and profound sadness. Yeah. I, I think the difference Christians should always be lamenting sin and the effects of sin, right? There, there should always be a sorrow for our own our own sin. There should always be a sorrow for the the effects on the world and on other people that sin has wrought. And I don't think that we can sort of like paint over those in happy colors right. and, and call it good. And I think that you're right. Like when you when you lose someone, you've lost somebody. Like that you you've never not lost that person. There will never be a point in my life where it's no longer true that I lost my mother right. in February of 2022, right? There's never going to be a point in that in my life that that's no longer true. Um, and, and 
I might quibble a little bit with the idea of that loss being part of my identity, just because I, I think of identity in a very particular way. But I think the point that you're trying to make that like the reality of that loss is never going away. Exactly. It's never going away. And I should never really be satisfied with the fact that that loss has happened because that loss yes. is a result of sin. Not, not, not in the like crass, like somebody sinned, therefore God did this, but in the sense that sin has wrought destruction on the created world and sin has caused death and sin has caused sorrow. That's never going to be not true until the last day, until Christ puts all things right. And I think learning how to, how to live and live in light of that loss even though it still brings about profan- profoundly sadness, profound sadness sometimes. I mean, so my, my wife and I celebrated our 10 year wedding anniversary this week, and that's a profoundly happy thing, but also my mother's not around to celebrate that with us. So like it's, it's also tinged with this profound sadness that comes with it. And I think that that itself, like that's a microcosm of the Christian exactly. life. Every happy thing that we have, is also tinged with sadness because it still occurs in the presence of sin and in the context of sin. So yeah, I think you're right. I think that we we need to learn to have a more broad, robust, uh, emotional life as Christians. Um, I think that that's important. And I think a lot of Christians just don't, we, we've been brought up to think that only the positive, happy, bright colored feelings are are healthy for Christians and, and we have to get rid of the other ones quickly. And that just isn't, it's not biblical, certainly isn't biblical. Um, it's not realistic. And I think it's a, yes. it's a legalistic burden that gets placed on a lot of Christians that they just can't, they can't stand up under. And exactly. so they, they crumble um, rather than learning how to bear up under sorrow and turn to Jesus. They just fall apart under sorrow and don't know what to do with it. And that's really the point I'm trying to make at the denial. It's, it's not as if to say like you in your identity essentially become something of this sorrow, but I think it is to say that you in your personhood bear I, a sorrow yeah. that is deep and that, this will never go away. And that's, you know, like the psalmist talks about, you, God, you know, God, you have made your people to see hard things, experience difficult things. This idea that there's something, so it's almost like the uh, the beautiful fall or to say in that sorrow, there was something, you have a special access as it were to Jesus because yeah. of one who has experienced this great sorrow that's in an unreserved way that the son of God who is truly man would also have experienced this great sorrow. So maybe this is like a rebuke of Christianity, which I've said before that would dance at the grave of Lazarus instead of have this yeah. morning that I think is a morning while it might be of decreasing or maybe just various intensity and magnitude is still present throughout the rest of our lives. We're all going to yeah. lose people that we love but to trust in Jesus Christ, who finally is the head crusher of death, is in some ways to take that sorrow and have access to our, the Son of God in a special way that gives us greater hope, that gives us greater joy, and that gives us a greater respect and worship for the Savior. This is a beautiful thing. It just doesn't remove the fact that nobody would choose this on their own, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's yeah, just a I don't hard thing. That, I mean, it's... It's a hard part of living in the world post-fall. Right. And just like anything else that is less than what God intended, it should drive us towards hope in the eschatological glory that right. awaits us. Right. So we can either be pressed down and crushed, or we can be pressed down and not crushed 
And then that not crushed leads to hope in the resurrection, hope in eternal life. So yeah, I'm tracking with you. I think, I think that's a good reminder for us all. And this actually is in some ways, I would say connected to what we're about to talk about this idea of sanctification and its application and its outworking in the Christian life. And as you and I spoke in terms of how we wanted to approach this again, go look at the back catalog. There's all kinds of great conversations. We've had several of them actually on sanctification and it's more technical components and teasing out the definitional aspects. But this is a little bit different because we want to talk about the application. We want to speak about how we understand this and it's kind of when you put shoe leather on it, as it were. Yeah. And we kind of centered on the Westminster Confession of Faith. And Well, I mean, we're always kind of centering on the <laughs> Westminster Confession of Faith. But in part 13 of sanctification. And I, I want to say like the latter part in particular, but to kind of set that up, let me read like the middle section and following. So people get a sense for like where we're going with this, just to give a little bit of prolegomena and then to come into like the meat, the stuff that's sitting on the bone that we want to chew on. So this is the WCF uh, part 13. So this sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part, which I take great comfort in this. Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God." This is like the proper setting for the conversation that we want to have, talking about this war that continues to take place, even in the midst of sanctification, and how we basically transverse this war, what it is that we're being set up for, and what it is that we're being mobilized to do in the midst of a great battle that I think the WCF really articulates particularly well. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think this particular section of the Westminster Confession is so well written, right? This is chapter 13 and sections two and three. And it's, it's so well written, not only because it's a beautiful piece of theological writing, but it just lands, it just lands on the Christian life so well. So Jesse and I have been consistent throughout the show that we believe that sanctification is monergistic. It's something God does to us, right? There's, there's definitive sanctification where he sort of changes your status to be set apart for his use, to be set apart for his purposes. And then there's ongoing progressive sanctification where your, your, your holiness increases. And we don't contribute energy to that, right? Monergism is one energy, one, one effectual worker in a process. God is the one that sets you apart. He's the one that changes and transforms you. That's not to say that there aren't other Reformed Christians who are coming to the Bible and and reading this slightly differently. Although most of the time I find that the Christians who say that sanctification is synergistic, the Reformed Christians, they really are saying the same things that we are. They're just looking at a different aspect of it, but that's a different topic. All of that said, we are active in the midst of that sanctification. So we don't do anything at all in justification. We believe, and then justification happens to us through that faith. But we don't, we don't, our behavior does not, there's no outflow of behavior from justification, right? It's not like you're justified and that naturally leads to specific behaviors. Sanctification naturally leads, logically leads to specific behaviors that will come necessarily in part 
over time until glorification. And this is something that I think um, we have to be careful of as Reformed Christians. So there are some uh, some people within the Reformed world who are so afraid of legalism, right. and I don't want to name any specific names, I'm not going to, but are so afraid of any form of legalism that they will say things like, um, expressing that Christian should see progress in holiness is legalism, right? They'll say that that's, for you to say that a Christian who's not experiencing some sort of progress in holiness over the course of their Christian life that that's a form of legalism and that really we shouldn't, we shouldn't be asking questions about progress or questions about um, increase of, of holiness or increase of good works. Um, that, that's a, that's a position within the reformed world that I think is an overcorrection. The most extreme version of this, and I will name this name, the most extreme version of this that, that you probably are familiar with, especially if you've listened to our show is sort of Tullian Tavidian free grace, free to fail theology, right? So Tullian would say, that you are um, you are free to fail in, in any sort of Christian effort, right. and what he means by that, or what, if I'm reading him as charitably as possible, what he means by that is that failure is not going to result in you losing your justification. Amen. Praise the Lord. Absolutely. What he ends up saying, though, is that you're not really obligated to persist and to succeed in holiness. You know, the example he uses is like, well, you you as a husband, you can take risks as a husband in terms of like trying to be a good husband, but you're free to fail. It, well, but you're not free to fail. Like there are consequences for failure. There are failure in many cases in the examples he gives is a sin. Right. Like you're not free to sin. So, so you have to, we have to be careful not to swing that far to the pendulum of saying like, we should never anticipate any progress in the Christian life. And the Westminster confession here straight up says um, that the regenerate part over time overcomes and so, right, therefore, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So as a Christian, we should anticipate that in this war that is, is happening between the Spirit and the Spirit is capital S in this, so it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who dwells within us is warring against the flesh, which is shorthand for all of our sinfulness, all of our sinful proclivities. In this war, we should expect that the Holy Spirit makes progress. Right, exactly. He, he grows us in holiness, and there's actual progress in the faith towards holiness, towards perfection, which we know only comes in the final day, in the final analysis, on the last day when we're raised to glory. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't anticipate overall, over the course of our whole life, progress in the Christian faith. And I think that at the same time as we can swing to one side and say, well, we shouldn't ever anticipate progress, expecting progress, requiring progress, assessing ourselves on the basis of our progress, that's legalism. At the same time, we can swing to the other pendulum side of saying, if you don't progress, if you don't have measurable immediate progress that you can see at every moment, then then you're you're actually not a Christian, right? And that's where we get things like lordship salvation, where right. there's this constant question about like, have you surrendered enough? Have you submitted enough? I'm not trying to propose that like we just take the golden mean of those two situations. But the, the reality is that somewhere in between there, we have to recognize we should expect and demand progress in the Christian life. If a person is not progressing and and at all over the course of their life, then we have good reason to wonder whether they actually are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, whether the Holy Spirit lives inside them or not. 
But all that said, we also have to recognize like things happen in fits and starts. There's going to be seasons where you have great progress. There's going to be seasons where you, where you fall backwards. And it's this, this onward progression over the course of your life. That is really what they're getting at in this, this question or in this, this confessional statement that over the course of a Christian's life, we should anticipate that they are progressing in holiness. They're being grown into conformity and maturity in the likeness of Christ over time through the course of their life. I think that that's a really important thing that a lot of Christians are seemingly missing in their life. Either they're so mired down in legalism and they're second guessing their salvation every time they screw up, or they're mired down in this, this radical free grace, no expectations theology that's present in some quarters. And it, it actually does lead to a form of antinomianism and, and lawlessness and licentiousness um, that I think is really dangerous. That's a pretty deep cut with use of golden mean, just so you know. I try. Yeah, that was pretty good. I'm, I'm totally with you, of course. There's something interesting here. I think that there's a tendency for people to think about like the natural abilities and means. So we kind of consider that if I can undertake in some way, like a really dedicated approach to spiritual disciplines, that somehow affirms that the Holy Spirit is working within me, or I need to play my part in making sure that I am sanctified. Right. I think that's what we're trying to differentiate here. Like God, instead of using just like the natural abilities as created beings and the things he acts directly to affect his will. So in sanctification, the Holy Spirit's using things, these ordinary means, the inspired word, prayer, the encouragement of other believers in outwork circumstances as the means, but the effectual power which conforms us to Christ is due to his supernatural work. So even fallen man can be motivated to change evil habits because of his feelings of guilt or some kind of pending danger or the consequences or to gain the respect of others or to advance in power or wealth or pleasure. In other words, if you throw a person who is drowning some kind of life preserver, they're going to grab onto that. And that's not like right. an act of grace. In that sense, it's just an act of selfishness to be self-preserved. The regenerated soul alone is enabled to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit toward the sanctification that we're talking about. Yet even this cooperation is still like an essential element, a work of grace. It is not a shared ability. Grace produces the faith and the obedience that flows from it. And it is only cooperative in that both the person and the spirit are totally active. I think that's like what we're driving at about like right. a lot of people talk about the synergistic nature, but that's what I think what they mean is like, it is only cooperative in that both the person and the spirit are active. But I think we would agree that if like you read a self-help book, the horrible thing about self-help is like, you've got to do the helping and yourself right. is like notorious. That, that is all. I don't yeah. want myself helping me. What I need is like a transcendent power, transcendent influence, transcendent truth to come and correct what is broken, to mend what has been disparate that's what I need. And so this is a great blessing that we understand sanctification to be monergistic. It's not a liability. And in yeah. that sense, I think we need to appreciate the fact that God is doing all of this work and the battle belongs to the Lord. And yeah. so in so much as he has changed us, regenerate, not just rehabilitated, but changed us altogether, gone to the new creation again, the new creation is the one that embraces by default because it becomes normative, the Holy Spirit's power and bringing about this great victory. But to your point, it doesn't mean that there won't be deserts. It doesn't mean we won't right. wander in parched and dry and arid lands where we feel like God is separated from us and that our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, to use the old cliche. But at the same time, what we rely on, what we put our hope in, is that the Holy Spirit is doing the sanctification in us, 
even as we submit and bow before him in humility, this is a real quantity. It's a real thing that's taking place. But we, at the end of the day, have to put all of our trust in the fact that God is doing the work. Yeah. And so I think that far from being the kind of thing where we say, am I doing enough? What gives us great hope and encouragement to say that God is enough and that he's doing this thing. And as we continue to live our lives, we will see that fruit and we'll see it come to, to bear its loveliness in our lives. But that's, it might be in ways that are at different speeds and at different rates of change, but that always there is that change coming. So I think what we're trying to parse out here, I, I hope is like a great encouragement to people. I mean, at least it is to me because yeah. in the same way, I would say like, I don't want to try to take responsibility for my justification. And most even reformed Christians would be like, we will not go there. We're, we're definitely going to say that everything that gives us the forensic standing before God is something that God does. I would submit to everyone. You want that same thing in sanctification. You don't want to be held yeah. responsible solely for all of the change that is responsible for bearing fruit in your life. Yeah, and I think, you know, the distinction that is made between active in versus not active in, I think that actually, like you've said, like it gets at the wrong element of this, right? So so this concept that people point to when they're they're trying to articulate, what they're trying to articulate when they say that sanctification is synergistic, meaning that God acts and we act in sanctification. I don't think anybody is saying we make ourselves holy. Right? They're not saying that we help God make us holy, that we contribute to God's work of, of making us holy. What they're trying to say, I think, when I've, when I've parsed it out and I've talked to people, what they're trying to say is that God making us holy necessarily results in certain things. Sure. And those things, uh, my pushback would be, well, those things are their necessary consequences of God making us holy. They are not components of God's making us holy. And I think that's that's where the comfort and the encouragement comes in this, right? If it depended on me in any sense to, to become sanctified, then it's a hopeless endeavor. It's the same as if it depended on me in any sense to become justified. It's a hopeless endeavor. And so the same, the same faith through which God justifies me, which he created and gave me, is the same faith through which he sanctifies me, which he created and gave me. So it's, it's the same. I used to think that we could conceptualize this by saying that, you know, faith was the instrumental means of justification and works was the instrumental means of sanctification. And that's just really wrong headed. Like right. I, I'm happy to admit that that was a wrong position that I used to hold because I no longer hold it. Faith is the instrumental means of both sanctification and justification, right? God, faith, God sanctifies us through faith, which he creates by the word. Right. So that's that's part of why in the scriptures there's this constant connection between faith and justification and the word and faith and sanctification of the word. Right. You're washed in the water of the word. Right. There's that right. passage in Ephesians where you're washed in the water of the word. God is sanctifying you through the proclamation of his word. Colossians 1:28, right? Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Right. That's that full maturity in Christ is that sanctification is that growth and holiness or this is this is the sort of I think the, the linchpin passage. It's Philippians two, um, starting in verse 12 it says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
right? So, so there's a couple ways you could parse out that last part. You could say it's God who works in you, both God willing and working for his good pleasure. Or you could even work it out to say it's God who works in you, both so that you will work and will for his yes. good pleasure. And, and I actually think that is that second part that's much more of an accurate reading of this. God's work in you causes you to will and to work for his good pleasure. But that doesn't mean that God's will and God's work in you is not God's work in you. Right? Right. You willing and working for his good pleasure is not God's work. That's not God's work. It's the outcome and the result of God's work. He works in you for the purpose that you would both will and work for his good pleasure. And I think this is this is where I think this comes down and where it relates to the Christian life is I think so often we look at the Christian life and we we think that is this unbearable, insurmountable struggle and work. And it, it is, it's hard work. But where sanctification comes in, and this is where I draw encouragement from the scriptures. This is where I, I look and I, I'm, I'm strengthened and edified by what the scripture has to say rather than crushed and pressed down is we can be competent in the success of our efforts in striving and in working for God's good pleasure because he is the one who's already done the work in us upon which that success depends. Right on. And so although we can't ever say we're going to perfectly execute that, uh, what we can say is that God has seen fit to make it so that he will work out the way for us to work and will for his good pleasure. And so I, the same way we might say that I can be confident in my evangelism, because if I succeed, all glory to God. And if I fail, all glory to God, because he's the one that is choosing whom to save. It's not my effort in preaching the word that uh, brings about the, the transformation and salvation in a person. It's God's spirit working in the secret places right to change and transform a person. Well, when I go forward and I try to try to do something in a holy fashion, I try to live in a life that is in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ and is in accord with what he has done for me and his salvation and is conformed to his image. When I succeed, I can glorify God in that by saying, God is the one who worked that in me. God is the one who brought about the faith through which he's transformed me and made me into this, is conforming me into this image of Jesus Christ. And if I fail, I can take comfort, not in some sense that I have an excuse, right? I, I'm still responsible for the fact that I failed. I'm not free to fail. I'm not, this isn't Tulian's theology. There's still consequences for my failure. But those two, as we've, we've harped back on it, I think over the last two years, this is, if we have a such thing as like a, a life verse for the podcast, uh, I suppose it's not a verse, a life catechism <laughs> question for the podcast. It's, uh, it's all things must be subservient to my salvation, yes, right? right on. So even when I fail, even when I, I try to, to live a life of righteousness and holiness and I fall short, that falling short, I, did, I never made this connection before. This is happening in real time. The same way that the Mosaic Law, the covenant of works republished in the Mosaic Law, is, is republished as a subservient covenant and an administration of the covenant of grace in that it points us to the need for Jesus Christ. Right. And that it shows us how, how short we fall. Right? The law is a mirror which shows us how much we need Jesus. Every time I fail and run aground on that law and I'm, I'm shattered against the rocks of that law, it shows me how much I need Jesus. So whether I succeed or fail, it still is driving me towards worship and, and grace and glory and, and driving me towards success in Christ in a way that I think a lot of Christians just don't get. 
it's not that we should rejoice in our sins, right? We don't sin that grace may abound. But nevertheless, sin, when we sin, grace still does abound. Right. So it, there is a there is an element that our sin magnifies the grace and glory yes. and mercy of Jesus Christ that I think we miss in a lot of our common understandings of, of what it means to, to understand sanctification and how it impacts the Christian life. Yes, th- that's really not that different than our conversation about like this denial of sorrow, how sorrow does the yeah. same thing, that God in his infinite wisdom has redeemed the human estate such that all of these things which we struggle with, which become thorns either in the flesh or our emotions or our intellect, are actually used to bring about his glorious grace in our lives. And I think that's like the critical part here is in a sense, like we shouldn't be trying to get after trying to remove the war of the flesh here because God uses that to demonstrate his power and his glory in the same way that every time in the Old Testament, we see him confront the sin, death of the devil. He stacks the, the deck against himself. All who are redeemed are going to struggle with sin in this life and each is going to progress differently. No one gets like a special rank that elevates him above the others. So there's no simple and quick like solution to our struggle. And so instead of trying to explain away the battle, we need to learn how to fight the battle. And that battle, that energy, that wherewithal comes through God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where I think we're trying to say, you don't want to have to take responsibility for that. You don't want to have to be the one that says like, I'm working out my own salvation on my own. It is God who wills and works all of that out for you. And so I think that that's like really the critical point of what we're trying to say here is that if you are in a place where you feel like you have intractable sin, intractable bad habits, intractable bad attitudes, that we need to continue, of course, to pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would come in his power in the Holy Spirit to basically take those and crush them. It is the Holy Spirit that does that. You can't you know, use your spiritual discipline in such a way to kind of leverage or borrow against them to somehow elevate yourself to the place of the deserving poor or somehow grant yourself greater power and authority because you've done these things and hope that God is going to somehow bear greater fruit. What we need is more humility to come to understanding that when Paul says, live up to the calling to which you've been called, he is asking you to come before Jesus Christ and access his power, his authority, his yeah. lordship in a way that increasingly says, God, I need you in every conceivable way. And even to understand and to bring greater fruit in my life, I need to abide in you. It's that abiding that's going to produce this fruit. And I think there is like a subset of Christianity, which says, if I can somehow bring a legalistic frame to bear here or to come and apply it, that somehow I'll just be a better Christian. It's kind of the same thing. You and I have kind of poked fun of this before. And uh, this is a triggering warning maybe for some that, you know, if you have this quote unquote quiet time or devotions in like a more profound way, or you're more consistent than others, that somehow this does elevate you into a place of meritorious earning. And this is just not true. It's not true for justification, not true for sanctification. But I'm just saying like, I can't think of a good example. Again, I, I fear that because of my connection with my wife who knows more about this than I do, and and you certainly as well, that there is like a Marvel Universe connection here that I just can't piece together. But this idea that like, again, you're trying to invoke something that is outside of your power to do. 
And there's a good proclivity to want that thing, to want to say that like, I have somehow, because of my dedication, I'm going to be able to produce better fruit. It's more instead to come before the one who has all power and authority over heaven and earth to say, Lord, I need you. I need you desperately. And even in like the moments, the best moments of your obedience, it's still like this glittering sin where you want to say, Lord, I need you. And I'm trusting in you to bring about both forensic justification positional sanctification, and then like increasing sanctification in all three of those categories. It's all God. I'm just afraid of putting myself in a place where I'm responsible for any one of those things because I just can't see it going well. The scripture tells us it won't go well for you. Not to mention that one of the few things that Paul kind of articulates as God opposing is the proud. You know, it says God opposes the proud. So I think like the question I'm I'm often kind of ruminating on is, Where's the line of pride? Like if you have any sense of pride, even in your own sanctification, that you're somehow working towards producing this fruit, is that not a subtle form of pride? And we know that Paul says, God opposes the proud, full stop. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. Yeah. I mean, we could continue. This has been an ongoing theme on our show for, I think, almost since the very beginning where we're trying to get at this understanding of the Christian life that is both fully resting and receiving and relying on Jesus Christ right. for all of God's benefits. Yes. Right? There's nothing that God gives us that comes to us in any way besides uh, through his gracious blessing in Christ Jesus. Right. The fact that we continue to draw breath even before we're saved uh, comes to us through Christ Jesus. When God gives us a good gift, it comes down to us from the father of lights through, through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. Amen. But at the same time, that is never an excuse for us to be lazy. Right. And I just think there's this balance in the Christian life that we really have to understand and strive for. (laughs) It's kind of like this, this perfect example is we have to strive to understand this but also we have to recognize that only only the Holy Spirit can give us true understanding of what this means. And, you know, one of the things that we like to do with this show is we like to point to resources outside of the show, right? Don't just take our word for it. Of course, search the scripture, but there's a whole history of Christian theologians that have been reflecting on this question longer than Jesse and I have been alive. And one of the books that has really helped me on this sort of this understanding, and I know a lot of people kind of in my my broader online reform circles and um, sort of the age group of of me and Jesse, this age group, a lot of us really, I think, really our perspectives and our understanding and our emphasis in this changed when the book Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson came out. For sure. It's just a phenomenal book. And Sinclair Ferguson, uh, if he's not a theologian you're spending time reading and and uh, spending time with, um, he really need to be. He's a prolific writer. He's written on all sorts of topic, but the Holy Spirit and sanctification have been two that he's been really, really, really a, a major contributor in. And as always, it's the end of the show. So we're going to tell you that you can get a copy of this in Logos Bible software, set up your reading plan, uh, and work your way through the whole Christ. Um, there's another book that he wrote called Devoted to God that's also very good, but it's not, they don't have it on Lagos yet. So it doesn't really work for my little bit here, but you should read that too. So check it out. You can get the whole Christ on Lagos Bible software. Um, it's like only like $20. And if you don't have Lagos Bible software, you can actually download a, the, the free base package and just purchase books. You don't have yes. to buy 
like a collected set. So even if you don't want to purchase the fundamental set, which is a killer deal, you can get the fundamentals package for $50. You get some free books with that. And then like the basic range of Bible translations and a couple Bible dictionaries and things like that. Even if you don't want to do that, you can get Logos Bible software and not spend any money and then just purchase books that fit your needs or purchase or do the free books of the month and build your library that way. So you can get the whole Christ um, all the functionality you need to cross-reference it with scripture and all that stuff is built in. But I, I would really encourage people to read this. Let me just read this little this little blurb here Do it. from the, the editor's statement here. It says, Ferguson shows us that the antidote to the poison of legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other hand is one and the same. The life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ in whom we are simultaneously justified by faith, right? There's justification, freed for good works, that sanctification, I might say, equipped for good works, and the assurance of salvation. Those three things come to us from Jesus. They come to us through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And, and as Christians, we can so easily, subtly start to rely on ourselves for those things without even realizing it. So I would just encourage you to pick up this book and read it. It comes from a the, the background of this book is it comes from him working on and doing lectures on and and writing and thinking about uh, what's called the marrow controversy, which was a, a controversy in Scotland. Um, and, and it's it's interesting because what it shows you is it shows you how this conflict and this issue worked itself out in the real world in the church. And I think that's a really good sort of cautionary tale for us in some ways, but I, I can't recommend this book enough. So check it out, pick up your copy of Logos, buy a copy of the whole Christ, uh, and then just take up and read. Holy Lege. There's another good Latin phrase to close <laughs> out the show. Take up and read. Yeah, I want to kind of come alongside that. We recognize we're giving this kind of pitch for Logos that, of course, it comes at a cost. But here's what I would say to you. I say this all the time to people. Cost only matters in the absence of value. And the value that you get even from the, the $50 package is really substantial. You're getting at least $50. And you might consider even if you just download the free version, it's a way to kind of accumulate a really lovely digital library. It's a means or a method or a conduit for which you to have that yeah. available to you and then to be able to search it and to love it and to study it. And I would go one step further and say, not only should you get the whole Christ, not only should you use that through Logos, but get another person who wants to do the same thing. And then you just book club that. I actually read this book in a book club of yeah. two people and the other person was my father. And it was so lovely, nice. the conversations that we had on a weekly basis about this. And uh, the, the unique thing about the book club, and again, using Logos Bible software as the means to facilitate that book club is there are things just like music or smells or things I read that always harken back to these lovely memories that I had when they first took place. And it's just amazing thing to have those memories be centered around conversation with somebody else. So I, I always never really think of my father and the great conversations that we shared as a result of reading this book together. And again, I would just affirm that to everybody. So once again, like I would like to think there's no topic that you and I don't talk about, Tony, where we'd, we'd always say like, you got to get this right. And this is like super important. And of course, this is one of those things. But we just want to make people aware that this journey that we've been on and continue to go on with the Order of Salutis is so rich and deep and lovely. It's a mine or a well of the depths of which we can never really fully plumb. And we just keep pulling out treasure after treasure, gem after gem, of which like even as we pull them out of the mines, we can take them in our hands and hold them to the light and turn them over in different directions. And there's all these layers and these intimate things that we can come to understand. And this is the beauty of our God. Who is like our God that allows for us not just to be justified, 
to give new forensic status to be made a new creation, but then continues to invest in us, as it were, that places like the seal, the down payment of the Holy Spirit, but that Holy Spirit continues Monday through Sunday to bring us about in a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, and then also not just corrects or rehabilitates us, but brings about a true restoration in regeneration where we might live the abundant life. I think that's what we're after. And if that's truly what we're after, then we ought to give credit to the one who brings it about, and that is God himself. Yeah. You know, I, I would like to say that I could leave the episode there, but I, I just found something <laughs> in Bible software that I just feel like it really shocks me that we've made it 309 episodes now without, without this. If anyone's wondering how to say honor everyone, love the brotherhood in Latin, <laughs> it's omnis honorate fraternitatem delegate. So, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.